brother. Yeah, and should we turn that off? Because I'm hearing some, um, are we, oh, we're good, we're good, all right. And I'm going to be uh, doing some uh, kind of bells and whistles sorts of things. I have models I brought with me. Uh, I know I learn better if I see things. Anybody else here like this? Okay. So the visual always kind of intrigues me. So I've got, I didn't bring our histone. The histone molecule is like, look, it looks like a wrinkled prune that just grew and grew and grew. And it's the size of, well, maybe um, a small uh, palm tree, okay? And, uh, and, and, you know, one of those big squatty ones with you know, things going out to the side. And so we didn't bring our full histone, but we brought just the arms of the histone to demo. And we've got some DNA and RNA. And so you say, what are those? Those are the molecules inside your body which give direct evidence that you were made by a wise designer because they're programmed with digital information like a computer. You guys are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's just in the 20th century and now in the 21st century that we're learning how fearfully and how wonderfully made you are. Now, does everybody believe in, with creation, you know, agree with creation, believe in that concept? No. And I thought I would just begin our time together by showing you a wonderful digital media production that just came out a year ago. I think, CI, you've seen it, uh, the little kinesin worker. I think uh, we actually were somewhat working with the guy who produced this. So enjoy from Discovery Institute, the kinesin workhorse. And make sure the, the sound is pulled up full. There should be sound, British... British commentator should be full. Okay, I'll be the commentator. Okay, this is what you see inside until the, until the sound audio uh, comes up. Uh, this is the interior of a cell. That is actually the center, what you see there with the little microtubules going out. And those are uh, some very interesting contraptions that are moving up and down the microtubules. But look at what is carrying these work, the workhorses, uh, robotic nano, ro robotic workhorses that are carrying that load of building materials in the big blimp-shaped uh, contraption. So the microtubule highway is being set up, and those two, in this case more than two, it looks like three, kinesin workhorses are literally equipped with feet, tiny molecular feet that flip one after another, and that's actually a slowed-down version. Those fleet are, or feet are moving so fast it would be a blur if we showed it in actual real time. And this guy is a billionth of an inch tall, is made up of intertwined strands of really high-tech protein uh, digital media that are formed into that incredible, powerful little workhorse. And there are thousands of these little workers that have been discovered in every single cell in your body. My wife said, no wonder I feel tired in the morning. My kinesin workhorses have been working all night, <laughs> pulling, pulling loads up and down the highway. So he's quite an amazing creature, and uh, he has a little attachment, that little fan-shaped attachment hooks on to the big glob of uh, building materials. Sometimes they kind of get into a scrunch, a little tight fit, where their, uh, their blimp of building uh, materials for the membrane is kind of hitting a, a, kind of an obstruction there. And so they have the ability to call in extra help. So if you look down below, a similar situation, you'll see that there are not just one, but in this case, two kinesin workhorse uh, robots that are basically pulling it, they're giving it the double the power as it goes up the, the highway. Now you say, what, it, you know, how did they find out this? 
well, they have some really powerful what are called x-ray machines. Yes, they use x-rays to figure out how your cell works. And they can literally take one of these guys and, and pass an x-ray, x-ray through his body and they study the, the shadows on the other side on the, the film. And they can see, oh, there's a carbon here and a nitrogen there. And they can rebuild indirectly through supercomputers what his body looks like. And so that is one of the wonders of your cell, actually every one of your 60 trillion cells uh, that are uh, really kind of now displayed for public view. So let's praise the Lord. Well done, Lord. Outstanding. Thank you. Now, when we get into uh, kind of a a little kind of rundown of what we're learning about our marvelous creation, your body is incredible. I want to just mention that this is a very controversial area. I know you're shocked. Controversy. (laughs) Whenever I talk in front of a a group of guys, in this case, uh, Christian guys, I have to realize that Many of us were, were brought up, I mean, we were literally shaped. And, you know, let's go ahead and hand out the little handouts. If the uh, wonderful helpers could do that real quick. Just, uh, just everybody, I think we have enough. We have 100. And, and if you need to share, let's, let's say it's father-son combo, maybe you can share. Uh, if we need to run off more, we'll get more. So what we're going to do is I'm going to run down. Our, our goal today is basically, after a little show and tell, I want to give you a crash course, very brief on what's happening in this area of Darwin versus design, okay? What we're going to do is I'm going to show, show you a little bit of what we've been up to, some of the bigger picture of apologetics, and then I'm going to go into three cracks in the wall of Darwinism. Think of Darwinism as a mighty wall. Uh, let's say it's like the, um, the wall that divided East Berlin from West Berlin. Remember that wall? Some of us remember that. I was, I was born in 1950, so I was 11, 10 or 11 years old when that wall went up. And I remember like yesterday, I said, oh my goodness, well guess what? That wall came down. When, when the Soviet Union collapsed and Marxism, can you believe it, was declared illegal in Russia, I thought, whoa, what will happen next? And so that wall did come down. Well, there are cracks in the wall of Darwinism. I sometimes compare Darwinism to a Titanic that has just hit the iceberg. You know, the unsinkable Titanic, so unsinkable that... It took about, what, seven hours for it to sink. It's incredible. Okay, so what I want to do is, uh, with the help of my assistant, uh, Griffin, if you would come up, and I'm just going to do a little demo quick. It'll take just a few minutes if you'll just wheel that down to the center. Thank you. My wife began helping me. By the way, uh, finish, target to finish by 9.25. We'll do it. Okay. This is uh, a string of pom-poms, but it's also supposed to be a protein, okay? So this is one of our earlier creations. My wife actually put it together for me. You can do this at home, by the way. Go to uh, your local, you know, uh, party store or your, you know, your um, fabric store, and then you can get these multicolored. And so it demonstrates, and I do this sometimes when I'm teaching in our classroom, how proteins are formed. But this is digital. This is a digital linkage of letters. There's actually an alphabet for proteins. I'll get to my Japanese mousetrap a little bit later. There are, within your cells, some amazing things called DNA. And the DNA for the world's shortest gene ever discovered, let's hold this up real high, like that. Okay, now go ahead and, uh, Griffin, start twisting the other end. 
This actually has been discovered to be the, and we actually have the sequence of ATCGs identical to the shortest, the littlest, the teeniest gene ever discovered. All right? Incredible. That is the formation code for a tiny rivet on one side of a, of a construction machine in a yeast cell. Can you believe it? Most short genes, like, you know, genetic genes, not genes you wear, okay, would go down to the end of the wall. That's a short gene. The longer genes at this scale would go all the way to downtown Safety Harbor or maybe over to Tampa. Some genes have been found to have 100,000 letters in them. This only has 75. Okay? Incredible. And every letter has to be in the correct order. Remarkable. Well, let's go ahead. And while you're... Griffin, you just uh, keep that. The RNA is a copy of the DNA. So we actually did an exact copy. So here is the copy, which is actually read off the RNA as it opens up. And those two wonderful workhorses of genetic wondrous and creation are then the result of intelligent design. And you know that because forces of nature do not produce code, computer code. We know that. It never happens in real, real uh, life. Now, let's go ahead and put the RNA and DNA down. And they produce amazing structures. And I'm going to just zip this open real quick. Um, I got it right here. Have you ever had a problem when a zipper wouldn't work? This is... Uh, uh, this is really not supposed to happen, but it will sometimes happen. Trust me, inside here is a wonderful protein. You know, maybe you can just cut it open. Yeah, if, uh, find a, 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 actually, we, we will bring this out later. This was not supposed to happen. The zipper should be working, and it's not working. Anyway, so inside there is really a cool protein chain made of something that looked like weird, distorted Nerf balls. Okay, remember Nerf balls? You, you know, Nerf football? So we actually have molded. Oh, you did it. Fantastic. Well done. Good job. Okay. Thank you. The Lord is good. Okay, Griffin, just if you just take that one. And this is supposed to be actually a kind of a fairly short protein chain. Fairly short protein. And proteins are actually three-dimensionally constricted or uh, wrapped around to a precise shape. And so if you would uh, allow me um, the opportunity, I'm just going to make you into a, a kinesin, okay? Can I do this? Just hold that up real high. There you go. This is the fan-shaped grabber at the top, okay? And now... This is the kinesins string of amino acids that comes down to his right foot. Okay, remember the kinesin had two feet? And then you have another one that literally comes and intertwines with it and makes the left foot. And that is the wonder of how it takes in your cell. They, they take the DNA, RNA blueprint and turn it into a precise three-dimensional tool or construction piece of lumber a tube, and all these things are constructed by the data that is input in the DNA. Wow. I say, wow. That's how amazing you are. And there's 20,000. You did a great job. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Uh, bless you. So, enough to show and tell. The C.S. Lewis Society is, is basically a ministry, like a mission ministry, 
to reach out to people who have doubts. I had doubts when I was in high school. I began to slide away from the Lord, never knew the Lord, had a kind of a nominal faith, and I became an agnostic by the time I entered Princeton. And I literally, you know, heard of students who were presenting creation as a plausible alternative. They actually were arguing that, no, is Genesis, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, true biblically? They're true scientifically. And I said, what? That's crazy. No one believes with any kind of knowledge of real science would, could believe such a thing. So I felt it my duty to re-educate those guys and the older people, the alumni who were teaching this crazy Bible class. And that's part of my story. I'll tell a little bit more of it in a moment. So we're dealing with people who are like the way I was in high school and in my freshman year in college. And a lot of your uh, sons and daughters who go off to university, or maybe you yourself have gone off to university, you've experienced that slide like Christianity, it's just mythology. It's just wish fulfillment, right? Freudian, you know, things come to mind here. So what we're trying to do in the C.S. Lewis Society is present a case for Christ, not just Bible, the, the Bible in general, your, and you might say not just um, the truth of, of creation, but actually Jesus Christ as the Lord of the universe and the creator of you and me. And that's very clear from the Bible. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Emphasize not just creation, but Christ as the creator. And then it says, the creator became one of us, bore the burden of our sin, smashed it, crashed it away to nothing, pulverized it, and then arose to truly show himself the fulfilling of the messianic prophecies that the God-man would defeat death and would be the resurrection and life. And I just say amen, because the, the, the eyewitness evidence of Christ alive from the dead is overwhelming. And of course, you guys got a chance to hear Gary Habermas. He came here, I think, two years ago. Thank you again, uh, CI and the, and the staff and the pastor, pastors for setting that up. So our emphasis is on creation and Christ. That's the, kind of the two poles of our ministry. Uh, today, Darwinism design is there scientific evidence for God, and I'm thinking of the cracks in the wall. Now, a little bit about, when I go like this, that means the next slide. Okay, <laughs> thank you. The Lord has opened up opportunities to speak in other venues. This is where, uh, by, by a crazy series of coincidences, I was invited to, to, by, a, by a conservative Catholic group to debate the head of the Evolutionary Society of Italy. I'm thinking, me? Well, Bill Dembski couldn't go, so they, they went to the, to the minor leagues. And, uh, but I was paid, by the way, it was paid. So my wife, we had frequent flyers, so she went along and took the pictures of the uh, university. Let go back, if you would, just a second. I, I improperly flicked my hand. Okay. <laughs> uh, but you see a standing room only in the lecture hall. You see down below, I'm kind of looking down to the guy on the left end is the, is the head uh, uh, who is not very happy. But he, just, he, didn't, he didn't even prepare. He hadn't even looked up what intelligent design is about. I was shocked. I mean, I, I felt, I mean, it was not really much of a contest because I presented evidence and he was just saying, well, we don't believe in Genesis anymore. I said, I'm not using Genesis. You know, so he was completely off the topic. It was just amazing. And so you'll see again with the standing room only audience, it was pretty cool. Next, I did, there is good. Okay, and this is just an opportunity that came up when we were invited to come to five different cities, speaking to universities. Right before we went, the Darwin crowd heard we were coming, and they got mad, and they just shut down every one of our lectures in the, in the five universities. 
And that resulted in a huge explosion. We were in the front page news, literally, of the Madrid Daily, the Barcelona Daily. You know, the, Wood, the Woodward and his team are coming over. They're going to ruin, you know, Spanish science is the allegation. But Woodward says, no, they're just, you know, so it was really amazing. And then five different newspapers, actually three TV networks came and covered our first lecture. So because of the attack, we had ten times the publicity that we would have had otherwise. And I was invited to go on to a big, very popular Catholic nightly uh, TV or radio program. And after the two other guys on our team and I got out of the program, I said, how many people were listening? He said, over a million. So we were presenting the case of Christ because of the attacks of the enemy to more people than we could ever imagine. That was kind of a hallelujah, thank you, Jesus moment. So uh, next slide. Uh, Michael Behe, we brought in a few uh, years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, uh, along with some other wonderful speakers, and we presented the case, not only of Darwin's Black Box, his famous book, but that's the His Stone. And by the way, the funny prune-shaped guy, that we do have electrified arms that have twinkle lights on them, okay? So these are two of those arms. I've told you about the, the crazy-looking prune-shaped thing. Uh, I think we actually have one more picture here. Click. All right, actually, yeah, that, that'll do. Okay, now, there are, besides biology, there's a lot of ways to show God, to demonstrate the reality of God. There's tremendous evidence from so many areas. I, if I had uh, Griffin, we, uh, what, spent like, what, 15 weeks on this, right? Probably 10 of them just talking about the evidences in our course at Trinity. And so if you want a really great DVD, and you can actually watch it for free on YouTube, is The Privileged Planet. Anybody here seen The Privileged Planet? Okay. You also have your, have your is, is it great? Great. Great film. Fantastic. Privileged. As a matter of fact, it's on your sheet. I do have a copy of my sheet here. All right. Roman number one. Don't you love outlines? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, room number one, second bullet point, fine-tuning, only like zone four force factors, tip the eyes, see privileged planet, there's your assignment. You don't go to a men's breakfast and get, you don't want assignments, but this is like fun, it's like eating candy, I'm going to tell you, you want to go home and eat five Snicker bars, you know, oh, I have to eat Snicker okay. So, uh, privileged planet, unbelievable, you can see the whole thing, I believe, on YouTube, and if you can't, just send us, uh, we have like a sign-up sheet, uh, you can put your email, get our regular emails, Okay. What about evidence? Well, this is like the Goldilocks zone. They found out as they studied the range, uh, the, the, literally the position or zone, a set of positions away from the sun that will allow life to flourish is a fairly narrow band in terms of the distance from the sun. And the earth is exactly in the middle of that zone. By chance? Well, that's just one of hundreds of factors. Now over 250 factors in the solar system, the earth, the universe, the laws of physics, that are just set among many range of possibilities. They're just set in the very spot, the sweet spot, you know? You know, when uh, Longoria hits the, hits the, you know, for the home run, he swings the sweet spot in his, in his bat. Okay, the sweet spot is exactly where the setting is. Hundreds of factors. When I started giving this presentation, we had about 80 or 60. And now they can't even keep track of them. They find new, new fine-tuning factors every year. It's incredible how beautifully organized and built the universe is. Next, uh, evidence of God in human hearts. That's me at age 19, okay, when I was an agnostic. And, and, I, and I was hearing C.S. Lewis's moral argument. We know there is a true right and wrong, and we know that we break that right and wrong truth daily, and that is by the blanks on the first bullet point, if, you're, if you want to fill in. The little blanks there are right and wrong. 
So that's the, the R and W, right and wrong. C.S. Lewis, when he was approached, he had been an atheist for 20 years, and his, his conversion was so dramatic, it just it impacted him fantastically. And BBC said, would you come on public radio? It was right after Battle of Britain, and they were you know, kind of sweeping up the rubble from the east end of London where 4,000 people were killed from the nightly rain of bombs. And, and he said, I'd love to. And he basically proposed coming on BBC and giving a series of talks on what real Christianity is. And he said, we could call it the art of being shocked. I love that. The art of being shocked. And that's literally what, the way he got into the series. And, of course, over three years taped, I think, what, 35 programs, which is now called a book. Anybody know? Mere Christianity. Yeah. So those radio talks became his famous bestseller, Mere Christianity. Next slide. Uh, the textbooks are really confused, I think, often. They'll say evolution is a fact. And in fact, what we're referring to, and I say evolution of different kinds of fruit flies and different kinds of finches, that is a fact. That is microevolution. But when we're dealing with this kind of Darwinian theory that brings us from the sludge and then a single cell all the way to mankind, we're talking about, and thank you uh, guys who organized this breakfast for using the word macro macroevolution. So if someone says, do you believe in evolution? I encourage you to ask the question, do you mean micro or macro? Micro means the diversity of kinds of people within the species or sister species, like, you know, the 600 fruit flies in the Hawaiian Islands. Don't ask me how that happened. Some original pair got blown off their, their course, and they were going to just, you know, maybe vacation in Hawaii, and they couldn't get back to the mainland, so they started Diversifying, okay, settle down. Uh, 12 or 14 species or varieties of finches, how do they diversify? I don't know. I have no problem with diversification evolution. That's microevolution. It's just, you know, shrug your shoulders. That's all, that's all it is. That's worlds apart from macroevolution, which is what we're dealing with. Next slide. Dawkins, uh, the, the leader of the new atheism movement, former biologist, now he's an evangelist for atheism. He said on Nat Geo TV, I'm not really convinced that God does not exist. I'm simply turning the question around to say there is no positive reason to say that God does exist, and he's therefore as likely to exist as the tooth fairy or pink unicorns. I disagree. I think the evidence for God from every single field is strong, even overwhelming. And that's what we're trying to show today. Next slide. Even the uh, agnostic leaders of science, this guy, Michael Denton, quite famous, began about 30 years ago to question macroevolution. And he wrote a book called Evolution of Theory and Crisis. Uh, those students who are in our, national, our, our program at Trinity College and take the course at an honors level, like Griffin did, have to read this book. I shouldn't say have to. I think you enjoyed it. Okay. And uh, Denton, in his book, concludes his study of 12 lines of evidence by saying this shocking statement, the Darwinian theory of evolution is neither more nor less than the great cosmogenic or creation myth of the 20th century. Now think about that. If you were a Darwinist and if you heard that, I mean, you'd, your blood pressure would rise to a dangerous level. You know, you'd, the veins would start bulging. You may start, you know, turning red. Ah, who's saying that? Now, 30 years later, there are so many attacks on the Darwinian theory, even within the Darwinian fold. I, I'm telling you, we're seeing the beginning of the Titanic latter stages as they're scrambling to the lifeboats. It's happening as we speak. Next slide. Uh, design theory doesn't really uh, bring in the Bible. It studies patterns in nature that are best explained by an intelligent agent. If you compare the man on the mountain, the famous formation in New Hampshire, I think it collapsed in early 2000s, sadly, 
uh, verses from Mount Rushmore, you see that the man in the mountain, kind of a crude look-alike of a profile of a guy, could be formed by nature. Mount Rushmore could not be formed by erosion patterns, right? Because of the digital or pixel media is so intense, there's so much data that matches an independent pattern, you know it was designed. That's what DNA is. DNA is the Mount Rushmore of science. The more you study it, the more it is even a million times more clearly designed than Mount Rushmore. Are you with me? Okay. So I encourage you to use the Mount Rushmore pattern as you talk to people. Say, would you, you know, say, you know, if, if you were taken without knowing the back, background story and shown Mount Rushmore, would you say that erosion could produce them? Of course not. Well, in the same way, natural forces cannot make a 3.1 gigabyte, 3.1 gigabyte hard drive in every one of your cells. That's what your DNA, 3.1 billion letters in your cell. Now, next slide. Uh, Darwin's uh, ha theory has many cracks. Keep going. Among uh, the cracks is the philosophical assumption. Darwin assumed uh, fairly early on in his life that God was probably, a, definitely not a Christian God, at most a deistic vague force in the background, but he became an agnostic by the time he wrote his book. In 1859, when his book came out, he was a full-fledged agnostic, had no certainty about God's existence to the day he died. I hope I'm wrong on that. I hope he turned around at the end, but I think the evidence is against it. So that was his assumption. The universe exists on its own without any designer, and the forces of nature are what created you and me. And, of course, his theory was very interesting, and we should study it and understand it and be able to critique it. So we're going to do that right now. Uh, keep going. Next slide. The theory of Darwinism's tree of life. The, the older version of PowerPoint, I'm so sorry that we didn't have a, 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 a you know, current theory. I'm not trying to point fingers. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. When you speak in front of an audience, never critique the technical prowess of the wonderful people who are setting up your PowerPoint. They are fantastic. Let's thank them for a great job they do week in and week out. So thank you for that uh, forgiveness. Uh, great, 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 great crew. And, and their great work has allowed me to present this. Thank you so much. But the, the Darwinism's tree of life, the common ancestry that is manifested here, is now falling apart. The driving force of that tree, natural selection, is in even worse shape in terms of the theory fitting the facts. Okay? The, the natural selection engine is an engine that doesn't exist. Okay? Let me show that in several, several ways. I'll just show you real quick. Darwin was really kind of enraptured with his own idea. His notebook had that little diagram uh, before, like 20 years before he published his book. And then he actually put a, a branching diagram in his book, Origin of Species. He said that we're all connected and we're all kind of sending these branches out through the forces of natural selection. Interesting theory. Uh, next slide. Uh, some of his friends, Heckel on the right, and another friend in England were doing uh, trees. These trees or branching patterns of life were just like capturing the imagination of the British people and around the world. But do they fit the scientific data? Well, no, they don't. Let's so show how that happens. If you notice the family trees that are in the textbooks, do you see any dotted lines? The bars represent the data. At the left, time is moving from the left to the right, so that these bars, the more thick bars, means, that, oh, we got lots of fossil data. Thin bars or thin section on a bar means we don't have much data. Do you see any branching patterns that are dotted lines? Yes? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, of course. Lots of dotted lines. You know what dotted lines means? You can guess. There's no data. 
There's no data connecting any of those fossil patterns of what we do have. It's theory. So what we have, in effect, is a thousand branches or or medium little chunks of branches suspended in the air connected by dotted lines. Why do we have no connections? That's an important question. That's an important question that Darwin bemoaned in his own book. Did you know that? Origin of Species. He wrote a whole chapter, Problems with My Theory. Why do we not have every student in every campus, high school, college campus, anywhere in the world, read chapter 6? I don't know. It would be interesting exercise to see Darwin's own struggle with his own theory in face with the data. It's gotten a million times worse since then. All we have is just a kind of a, a mythology. Darwinian theory is much more mythology than it is science. It's theory upon theory, supposition, mental constructions. Data does not fit. Let me show you why that's true. Uh, one aspect that's come out, the tree of life is now cut down. Michael Rose um, has not really made a lot of friends with his fellow Darwinists by saying this. But he said an evolutionary, he's an evolutionary biologist at UC Irvine, very fine campus out west. He's been saying, quote, the tree of life is being politely buried. We all know that. Did you know that? I didn't know that until I read that. And what that means is behind closed doors, when the biologists talk, you know, in kind of hushed voices, lest anyone, you know, have a, um, a tape recorder nearby. By the way, that, you, know, you know, the genetic data doesn't really fit the tree of life. We can find the gene here, but then above that, we don't find the gene, and then it crops up further up. How can you lose a gene and then regain the gene? That doesn't make any sense, you see? The pattern of genetic evidence is not fitting. The tree of life is politely being, uh, being politely buried. I'm glad you're giving it a polite, proper burial. Next slide. And we're into the cracks. The sewer set of, I'm doing three cracks, and we'll, we will... Can I have seven minutes instead of five? I'll make this quick. Okay. Um, the cracks, it says, first cracks, proofs of macroevolution are collapsing. Heckel's embryos often in the textbooks, are fudged data. They're not good data. He tried to show that all the animals, as they gestate, have the same pattern. They don't. And so this is how different animals are as they're gestating. Next slide. DNA evidence is turning against Darwinism. And again, we have a, we have a, a 98% is the allegation. And now you see written over that on the, on the little circle is that's a myth. The 98% match of human and chimp data is now recognized as a myth in major science magazines. You cannot compare chimp. The Y chromosome, by the way, all you guys have a Y chromosome. Your wives, your daughters, your, you know, any female um, acquaintance does not have a Y chromosome. Male, males only carry the Y chromosome. Compare the chimp and the human Y chromosome, radically different. How did that happen? If we are so closely related, if we you know if the split in the tree happened recently, uh, that's in your outline. Junk DNA, they said most of your DNA, 95, 98% is junk. Now, in the last 10 years, they said, oops, we were wrong. About 50 to 85 or 95% of your DNA is being used. It's in very subtle, very hard to detect forms we never knew it was there, racing around, doing all kinds of jobs. I say, hallelujah, thank you for the advance of science. It is cutting down the tree of Darwinism. It is a God thing. Transitions in structures, next slide, uh, that seem impossible. The birds have a completely different, at the lower level, you see birds have a, have a lung where the air is forced through constantly in a circulatory loop. They don't breathe in and out. Well, they do, but, but it's forced through a pattern 
of tissues, of literally lung, lung channels, where the air never reverses. Whereas reptiles, amphibians, and all mammals, you, you guys, breathe in, breathe out. If birds have a completely different form of lung, how did a reptilian, if you've seen Jurassic Park, right? Dinosaurs evolved into birds. That's their little dogma. Dinosaurs, here. Let me just dangle a little watch in front of you. Dinosaurs evolved into birds. Yes, dinosaurs evolved into birds. And you kind of, you know, hypnotize you. Okay, don't question that. No, I won't question that. Okay. Uh, no. How, if birds have a radically different kind of lung, how did you go step by tiny step from this different, you know, inverted tree lung like we have, and the reptiles would have had, because all of them today have that, into this different form of a bird lung? Uh, next question. Uh, Right? Our best people are working on that. Send us another $100 million. Get back to us in five years. You know? And that's the kind of answer you get. I, I'm being a little bit harsh, but I'm not really being off uh, in terms of the situation. Next slide. Now we're into the second crack of fossils. This will go fast. I love fossils. I am one. No, my kids still I am. Okay. I uh, just turned 65. Anybody here from uh, born in 1949 to 1951? Anybody? Okay. Wow. We need to have a reunion. Like, you know, the howdy-doody reunion. Okay. Um, but, I mean, so uh, when you look at fossils, you're looking at the imprints of uh, the hard parts that have, you know, animals that have died many years ago. And you're looking for any transitions, any gradual change from one form to another. That would confirm Darwinian theory. Darwin himself said that in that faded chapter 6 of his book. If it could be demonstrated, okay, he said you can find any of these transitional forms. My theory is supported, but he could not, especially at the lower level. So do you recognize that fossil? Yeah, it's a fern, right? That's the earliest fern fossil. Next slide. Shrimp appear in the earliest form as they appear today. The early shrimp suddenly appear out of nowhere. No evolutionary transitions. Next slide. Seahorses the same way. Early seahorses look modern. Next slide. Earliest crabs look like you know, something you might pick up off the beach in the Caribbean somewhere. Next slide. Do you recognize that? Spider. Very good. It's one of the earliest spiders ever discovered. Slow down a little bit. I, okay, back up, please. Thank you. We're excited. Okay, next slide is the bats. And you recognize how the two top fossil forms look somewhat like a modern form. Amazing. They don't change radically. And then the bottom, next slide, is dragonflies, a modern one in the back, and three earlier you know, fossilized forms here. Next slide. The fossil chasms that we see between different animals uh, point to two things, and that is sudden appearance and stasis. Um, the biggest example on your sheet, Roman numeral four, there's a little fill-in. Uh, and that's the, the key example of this is the Cambrian explosion. Next slide. Cambrian. You see that? That's the answer that goes in the blank if you want to write it in. C-A-M-B-R-I-A-N. Cambrian explosion. It's down near the bottom of all these fossilized series. At the top, you have the Permian, Cambrian at the bottom. If you look carefully, we have a pickle and cheese, all beef patty, and special sauce layer there uh, on the middle section of this uh, diagram. That's, this is the Big Mac version of the fossil record. And so uh, amazing what we see in the fossil explosion. You do not see transitional forms at the lowest level. You see different kinds of life appear suddenly, like this guy. Next. Thank you. You see Microdiction in the middle? A worm that had eyes mounted next to each pair of legs. How would you like to have a pair of eyes mounted at your shoulders and on your hips? That would be interesting. Now, let me take a, take a look, you know. 
Um, next slide. Opabenia, strange creature with a, like a proboscis with a grabber tip at the top, five eyes on its head, an animal so ugly only its mother could love it. Opabenia appears in the fossil record suddenly out of nowhere, and then he settles into a pattern of never changing. And we call this stasis. Sudden appearance and then stasis. That pattern of sudden appearance and stasis is seen everywhere. Next slide. Hallucigenia, and uh, is, that's the fossil. Uh, I, unfortunately, the, the actual um, artist representation is hidden behind it. But the fossil here, Hallucigenia fossil, is a glorious example of design. Seven pairs of spines on his back, seven pairs of little tentacles that he walked on. He appears suddenly, and guess what? He never changes. He never evolves into anything else. I love to ask my Darwinian friends, how do you explain abrupt appearance followed by stasis? Half the time they say, what's, what's that? And then since they're now asking me, what's that? I can share a little information about this very huge problem area. Next slide. Such bizarre forms as a walking cactus have been found, realize, have been realized that uh, these are strange forms we've never seen anywhere. They were just discovered in a formation in China. Next slide. This is Anomalocaris. Uh, he had two grabber arms in front, a little brown mouth that he would feed on uh, animals. He was the king of the sea. Most of these animals were three to five inches in length. He was seven feet in length when fully grown. Uh, I'm glad he is extinct. I'm glad he's extinct. And he appears suddenly in the fossil record, and then he goes extinct after never changing. Okay, and then last but not least, I'm just going to mention Fushianhuya Protensa. It took me ten minutes to learn how to pronounce his name. <laughs> Okay, and he is a masterpiece of engineering. They even know uh, his structure of his innards uh, back and forth, and they know it's high-tech and advanced. So I'm just going to go ahead and close after showing you one or two more slides because we're, we're getting just a couple minutes beyond. Uh, that, I'll skip that slide. The third, no, go back, thank you. The third area is the DNA and nanomachines. And I'm not going to say much about this because we've already talked about the wonders of DNA. But Michael Behe has shown that that little flagellum, you see the little rotary engine there, is amazing in its multi-part construction. It's like a gizmo that you are repairing in your shop, and if you take any one of the pieces out of the gizmo, it doesn't work. Darwin's greatest headache is right here. Because not only do you have DNA and RNA and proteins, but those proteins whoop, you know, whip around, they scrunch or fold to form machine parts. That machine, that rotary engine, called the flagellum, has 40 working parts. It has a rotor, a stator, bushings, universal joint, propeller. It has construction proteins that set up the proper sequence. It is a wonder of complexity. It's like a, a mousetrap. I got this when I was in Japan two months ago, and I had lost, actually, my previous mousetrap uh, broke. So I'm going to actually probably smash my hand by doing this. But let me just go ahead and say it works, okay? I think we're having ringing in our ears now. But this mousetrap needs five parts. The base, the U-shape that does the squishing, the, the spring, the, the holding bar, and the catch, the, the trigger. If you take any one of those parts away, how many, how many mice are you going to catch? Zero. Darwin's theory cannot work with the machines in the cell. The, sh the cell is chock full of wonderful machines. Each one of those machines requires every one of its parts. So you don't get function until all the parts are there. How can natural selection be forming parts that have no use? 
and just storing them in the attic. It wouldn't. It would get rid of anything like that. Do you see the problem for Darwinian theory? This is called irreducible complexity. It's a complexity that you can't reduce it further. And if you want to just see one video that will show this, and I know this is on YouTube, it's Unlocking the Mystery of Life that's on there too. Okay, this is irreducible complexity, and a teacher sometimes, rarely, hopefully, I don't do this that often, but I'll have you sometimes re re repeat something with me. Irreducible, irreducible. complexity. It's a mousetrap type complexity. You need five parts. You can't put a base out there and hope that a mouse stumbles and maybe falls through the air and hits his head and dies, right? That's not going to work. You can't just add a base and a holding bar and hope that as the, the animal is stumbling through the air, it gets impaled on the holding bar. And that's not going to help. That won't catch me. You've got to have all five parts. In the same way, Darwinian theory crashes and burns at the level of the complexity in the cell. And we can say, hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you for allowing such an avalanche of good information to be released at this point in scientific history so that we can see that what God says in his word is true. It's overwhelmingly true. It's scientifically true. It's biblically true, but it's true to our hearts because God made you and me, each one of us, for a wonderful purpose. He is an awesome God. He made for you for an awesome purpose, for an amazing, awesome adventure in life, and giving you now awesome tools, mainly the Word of God, but now we have these other tools from science to help us. Isn't he great? Let's just thank him. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for the opportunity to be with you.